This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, friends, let's uh, let's pray again. Welcome to those of you who are new. Glad you're with us. We have lots. You know, I would really prefer if some of you would come up uh, a little bit closer. So, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) No? Okay, sister. That's fine. That's fine. Let's pray, though, and we'll get right into our next session. Father in heaven, we are thankful, so thankful for the opportunity to consider Colossians uh, over the next uh, couple of days. This small letter, so rich with truth, so important in our current thinking, and the challenges that we're facing today as a people. Lord, please open our eyes. Send your Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't have the wisdom to explicate this book. And those who are hearing, even if they're in just listening on audio verse somewhere, they don't have the wisdom to understand. Lord, we need your Spirit to give us the understanding And teach us how to act in accordance with what we hear. Thank you for hearing our prayer again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last hour we considered uh, the the church in total. We looked at uh, general characteristics of the Colossian church. So now we're going to shift gears and start into the doctrinal meat of Colossians. And the title of this uh, presentation is Total Focus, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. So let's go right into that. There are, uh, in verse 13 and 14, three main ideas. So I'd like to, again, let's read these two verses together. Uh, The Even those of you who wear glasses should be able to see uh, the words on the screen. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Let's read those together. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So there are three points here. One is rescue. The second is repatriation, and the third is redemption. So you have here the picture of a conqueror who is liberating a people. Have you ever noticed how, how much of that motif you see in the Bible? God portrays himself as a conquering king coming to liberate a people who are in bondage under an unjust oppressor, and he's going to repatriate us in a different uh, kingdom, a new location. So notice it says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. The rescue here is from an opposing power that was holding us against our will. If you're a believer, you are not here in this world willingly, except, of course, to conduct mission work. (laughs) 
That's the only reason why we're still here in the world anyway, isn't it? I mean, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Because there's still mission work to do. The minute that's over, he will come again. Right? Am I correct? <clears throat> so the, the power of darkness is holding us against our will, and it's called the power of darkness. Why? Why not the power of light? Why not the power of lemonade? I don't know. <laughs> Why is it called the power of darkness? Have you ever thought about that? Now, again, uh, for those of you who weren't here in the earlier session, I'm a teacher, and when I ask class questions, I would like to have an answer. <clears throat> you can interact. It's okay. They probably won't pick it up on the uh, recording, right? No. So you can shout out. Go ahead. Why is the power of darkness called the power of darkness? Okay, it's related to sin. That's, that's true. Somebody says sin. God is light. Okay, so it's the opposite of, of light. Yeah, but why specifically darkness? What is dark about this power? Why is it called dark, a dark power? What's, if we were to turn, there's no windows in this room. If we were to turn off all the lights, take away that exit sign, take away that light there, behind the, the uh, panel. How would it be, and let's say we scattered all the chairs around this room in a random order, randomly, everywhere there was chairs, just scattered around. Sister, would you like to walk through this room? Why? You wouldn't be able to see and you would, you would be falling over stuff, Right? And that's why the, the, the Satan's power is called the power of darkness, because it is cloaked in deception and secrecy. He doesn't want you to know anything that he's doing. In fact, he's trying to convince you that you're in a different reality than what's actually going on. That's why it's called the power of darkness. Because it's clothed in all kinds of lies about God. So Jesus, it says, has delivered us from the power of darkness. How many of you would like to say amen to that today? He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's rescued us. But he also plans to repatriate us. It says he has already, it's, uh, according to verse 13, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Friends, we are no longer citizens of this world, but of the heavenly kingdom, because Jesus has sacrificed his own life, bought and paid our, and, and, and signed our uh, immigration papers with his own blood. We are going to be repatriated somewhere else. Not this sinful, fallen world that we live in now. Of course, the challenge is we still live in this world, and though we are citizens of another place. So what does that mean about our status in this world? We're passing through. We're sojourners. We're travelers. This is not our home. 
But there's another implication too. I want you to think again of the conquering king motif. Is the prince of this world allied or an enemy of the kingdom of which we are now citizens? Huh? Enemy. Oh. So that means we live in what kind of territory? Enemy territory. This is not a friendly place for us. This is not a warm, fuzzy uh, spot where we can just kind of kick back and sip a nice cool drink by the pool. This is not, this, this world is not the place where we can relax and just let our hair down. When will that time come? Yeah, not until heaven. That's what actually, by the way, is going to make heaven such a blessing. How many of you would like to, if, how many of you feel, have felt stressed in the past day? <laughs> and I'm sure if I said weak, everyone's hand would go up. One of the blessings of heaven will be this repatriation to a land where there will be no stress. You don't, and you can relax, finally. You know, you can, de- how many of you enjoy after a hard week, you know, the sa- you know, Friday afternoon comes and you start to decompress. How would you like to have an eternity to decompress? Oh man, I am so looking forward to that. So this is all packed into this phrase that he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We have a new ruler. We have a new land. We have a new government to look forward to. And then, of course, it says in verse 14, in whom, meaning the Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So what's the means of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins? How did that come about, according to the text here? Jesus' death on the cross. And I would suggest only by that death could sins be forgiven. You'll understand why I say that uh, this afternoon when we deal with the dangers that face the church. Even today, there are people saying, well, I'm not sure Jesus had to die in order for us to go to heaven. Some people are saying that. We'll get to that this afternoon, though. Jesus' death on the cross, suffering the equivalent of the second death for us, was the means by which we have been forgiven. And I want you to think again of this motif of the conquering king coming and liberating us. Every one of us is guilty of war crimes. Now, most of us are not, uh, I don't think there's anyone in here old enough to remember the Nuremberg trials when the um, many Nazi officials were uh, put on trial for the crimes that they committed during uh, World War II. Every one of us is guilty of war crimes. Every one of us has been involved in the great controversy 
against, uh, between Christ and Satan. Not one of us was born converted. Not one of us. So every one of us is guilty of war crimes, and we need to be forgiven of those crimes. The good news is that the very king himself, who is coming again, who is going to repatriate us, has shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven of all war crimes committed against him. Of course, we are obligated to remain loyal to the government of the one who died for us, which is Jesus himself. So this presents to us, then, an overview of Christ's work. In light of the great controversy, I might add. But then Paul transitions in verse 15 to talk about the person of Christ. Who is this son? Who is this one, this this conquering king? Who would do this for us? Verse 15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? So when it says he's the image of the invisible God, he is, here we, we see presented someone who you can see, an image, who is supposed to represent someone who you can't see. Does that make sense? Jesus is the image of God. You can see Jesus, but no one has ever seen God at any time, the Bible says. The Father, I mean. So what we know about God is through beholding who? Christ. And Christ is called the firstborn of every creature. Now, some have gotten tripped up over that uh, phrase, firstborn. How do you understand that? Have you ever heard someone misrepresent that? to mean that Jesus somehow had a beginning at some point, the firstborn of every creature. I mean, haven't you heard the arguments? But it says he's the firstborn, so he must have had a beginning, some say. What do you think about that? How should we understand that? Have you ever been confronted with that? Raise your hand if you've been confronted with that. No one? You have. Okay, you have, brother. Okay, my brother, you have. If you haven't been confronted with it yet, you will be at some point. So what's the answer to that? How do you explain that? He's the firstborn of every creature. (laughs) Well, you could uh, take the uh, counsel of Jesus. If they persecute you at one text, flee to another. (laughs) That's not what he said, actually. No, we should be able to give an answer, right? Here is the uh, deal on that. This phrase, firstborn of every creature, is not suggesting that he had a beginning, but that he has been given preeminence. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, for instance, says, I will, speaking of David, I will make him my first, the firstborn. Question, was David the firstborn of anything? Was he the firstborn in his family? No, 
Where did he stand in the lineup of sons? You guys read the Bible, right? Okay, where did David stand in the lineup? He was the last one. God said, I'll make him the firstborn. What did that mean? I mean, was David, I mean, was God going to rewind time and go back and have David born before Eliab? No. So what did it mean that he was going to make him the firstborn? It meant that he would be given preeminence over the others, right? From eternity past, the Son of God willingly assumed a subordinate role to that of the Father, even though he's equal with the Father, even though he is co-eternal with the Father. He willingly assumed a subordinate position, but now his rightful position is clearly seen that all things should be put under his feet as ruler and priest. Just as in the families in the Old Testament, the firstborn son was both the ruler and the priest of the family once the father was out of the picture, right? And so this is a way of saying that Jesus is going to be given preeminence as ruler and priest of the human family. By the way, is Jesus ruler and priest? Does the Bible say that in other places? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, right? I'm so glad that uh, uh, Clint Walling is here talking about the book of Hebrews. That's a vital book. Listen to those presentations uh, on Audioverse, please. We'll actually talk a little bit about that in Colossians chapter 3, so make sure you don't miss that. That's going to be tomorrow afternoon, uh, tomorrow morning. So far from meaning that this, uh, that Jesus had a beginning, this is actually a way of exalting him as ruler and priest of the human family. So not only is he ruler and priest, but he is also, uh, according to verse 16, what? What's, what's another title we can give him? Verse 16. Maybe we should read it. It's right there in the text. The answer, it's like, this is like a multiple choice test. The answer is right there in front of you. Okay, here it is on the screen. For by him were all things, what is the next word? Created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Did you notice a a phrase that repeats through that passage? Notice, just, just read it up there. The answer's on the screen. Don't look this direction or you won't get it. (laughs) Look right there on the screen. Check it out. What's the phrase that repeats? All things. Yes. Why do you think the Bible repeats itself like that? Yes, exactly, brother. So I could get it through my thick cranium that Jesus is the one who made everything. He's the one who spoke the words, let there be light. 
He's the creator of things seen and things yet unseen. Did you notice that distinction there? All things that are in heaven, have you seen those things yet? There's a few human beings that have seen things in heaven. Ellen White saw things in heaven, but I haven't seen anything in heaven yet, only through the eye of faith. But there are things up there unseen that Jesus created. There are things down here on earth that we have seen. The visible was created by Jesus. The invisible was created by Jesus. Even the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers were created by him and for him. Now, what are those, what are, what are we talking about here with thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers? Especially the idea of principalities and powers. Where else do you find that in the New Testament and what's it talking about? Right, okay, and the armor of God helps you to stand against the principalities and powers. So what's he talking about there, brother? Are those good things, principalities and powers? Would you like to move in next door to the principalities and powers? No. He's talking about, of course, the enemy, evil angels. You know, there's a cosmic war going on between the good angels and the evil angels. And all these things... These beings were created by Jesus. But verse 17. Well, back up. I want to just mention one more thing before we move to verse 17. Did you notice that all these things were created not just by him, which is vitally important, by the way, but also what? For him. What does that indicate about Jesus? If they were created, not just by him, but for him. He is all-powerful, and not only that, but he is sovereign. They were created for his enjoyment, for his use, for his glory. Not just by him. You know, I've, uh, I used to work construction. Loved it. I love working with my hands, right? Um, that's one of the things I love about Weimar, actually, being uh, uh, on the faculty at Weimar. We get to not only teach and do academic stuff, but we get to work with our hands, right, William? Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but I've worked on homes that, wow, I mean, these, these homes were amazing, um, Thousands and thousands of square feet. Like, I remember we did a 12,000 square foot cottage on Lake Michigan. I don't know if you can use the term cottage for 12,000 square foot structure. Maybe not. But anyway, but I, were, I was the one who worked on that home, but it was not for me. It was for somebody else. I was just the workman, right? I was just the carpenter doing my thing. But it wasn't for me. It was by me, but it wasn't for me. That's the distinction I'm trying to get you to see here in this text. Everything that was created was not only by Jesus, but for Jesus, which means that he is sovereign over the whole creation. But verse 17 presents us with an additional fact that we need to reckon with. 
It says, and he is before all things. Stop there for a moment and consider the weight of those words. He is before all things. What's the meaning there? Let me just ask you this. I'll give you a big, fat hint. How many of you would like a hint? You know, if you're a student, my students always like me to give them hints, you know, when it comes to assessment time. Well, I'll give you a big, juicy one. Can you square a pantheistic worldview with this statement, he is before all things? No, why not? Because pantheism says, where is God in pantheism? He's everywhere, and he's nowhere, right? (laughs) In pantheism, God is only imminent within the creation. He does not exist outside the creation. But this completely knocks pantheism out of the picture because it says he is before all things. He is, in other words, transcendent over the creation. Why would Paul need to make that distinction? How old of an idea is pantheism? Did it start with Dr. Kellogg? No, our noted pantheist of the past. No, of course not. Pantheism is old. Old. It's the Garden of Eden, right? Yes, sister. Paul knocks pantheism right out the door with this statement. He is before all things. God is transcendent over his creation. He is not bound by his creation. He's not a prisoner within it. He can make it do whatever he needs it to do. If he wanted to change the laws of physics, he could. If he wanted me to defy gravity, he could make that happen. (laughs) Right? He could suspend the law of gravity. He can do whatever he wants to do because he is before all things. By the way, that's the whole basis of the supernatural the miraculous. You see all kinds of things in the Bible. I mean, think about this. How did Jesus multiply loaves and fishes? (laughs) How did Jesus walk on water? Have you ever tried walking on water? Steve, do you barefoot? You don't barefoot ski? You do. (laughs) But what happens if the boat slows down too much? You go down. Jesus didn't. What happened there? It's the fact that God is before all things. That's the issue. Okay, let's keep going. The last phrase here. By him, that is who? Who are we talking about? Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Son of God here. By him, all things do what? Consist, which means to hold together. What's implied here? Come on, we're having a Bible study here. Isn't this great? I love inductive Bible study. I like to just plow in there and find out what's in that text. Okay, so we're trying to discover some things. What does it mean that in Him all things consist? Say it again. Okay, he created everything. Okay, we've already mentioned that, and that's, it's good to reiterate that. 
But this is actually a different idea. All, he sustains it all. That's right. He holds it all together. We need to dispense with the idea that God wound up the world like a clock and then just let it go. No. If God was not actively sustaining life here on this earth and making sure that the atoms stay together, the electrons don't go shooting off somewhere, uh, etc., this world would come unglued. You know, it's, it's a fallacy to think that we have within ourselves the ability to live apart from God. Uh-uh. Not true. God sustains all things. In him, or by him, all things consist. Okay, now I want to move on to verse 18. Who is Jesus? That's the question we're dealing with now. This is really the focus of the New Testament church. Who is Jesus? They were focused on Christ's person, and they were focused on Christ's work. Now, verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. I'll stop right there. Notice how it says he is the head of the body, comma, the church. So what is the body? The church. We call that apposition, where you put a noun, and then you put another noun right after it, and the noun that follows is supposed to be thought of as the same as the noun that comes before it, right? So he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. There's that dreaded word, head. He is the head of the body, the church. That's the word that so many people are afraid of today. You know, this, in the whole controversy over women's ordination, this, this idea of headship and so on, some people just fear that word. They hate that word, kephale, in Greek. Um, but the meaning here is clear in the context, isn't it? What does this whole passage taken together mean about Christ and his relationship to the church? Where does he stand? He is the head, which means what? Yeah, <laughs> I like that, sister. Can I write that down? <laughs> Everybody is supposed to follow him, right? He is the authority in the church. It's a question. This, this deals not with Christ as creator, not with Christ as sustainer, but Christ as authority figure in the church. In fact, this word beginning, you notice there in, uh, I have the Greek text below for those of you who are Greek students. Uh, everyone should learn a little bit of Greek, by the way. Uh, I wish all of you could come to uh, take my class at Weimar Institute. Beginning Greek, you would really be blessed. You know, it just, it's like looking at a black and white picture and then looking at a color picture. Yes, you can, sorry, you can still recognize the faces in a black and white picture. But when you see a color picture, 
Wow, then you can see the difference in the skin tones and the, oh, this, uh, this person has this color of blue eyes and this, color ha- this person has this color of brown eyes. It just makes it come alive even more than uh, in, a, in, a, in a translation here. Uh, but in any case, the, the word in red is the word beginning, arche. Now, we use that word uh, in reference to the Queen of England. The Queen of England is a what? You guys, you guys have studied English, right? Okay. Yeah, she's a queen, but we call her a monarch. There's the word RK. A monarch is, is a, a singular ruler. All right? Right? So... Um, a monarchy is a government that is ruled by one individual, a king or a queen. So in the New Testament here, we could translate beginning. It, it can mean that, but it can also mean ruler, someone who is in a position of authority. So he's the head uh, of the body, the church, who is the ruler, and then it, you could say, he says, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, the protuon. So, of course, what is a prototype? A prototype actually is the thing you copy from, right? When Tesla introduced their revolutionary automobile, they, I'm sure, introduced, they've built a prototype, which means this is the first one, and we're going to see how this one works, and if this one works well, we'll build a number of other ones just like it, or we'll modify as necessary. So if you put all these together, Jesus is the head, he's the ruler, and he has the first position. He's in the first place. So what does that say about his role in the church? Again, sister, can we have that line again? Right, so the animal actually, the hummingbird is actually the prototype, right? Yeah, you're right, sister. Okay, but give, give us that line again about, you know, how, what's Jesus' role in the church? Everybody's supposed to follow him. That's right. He's the one that's had, that has the say. Right, so he's the creator. He is transcendent over his creation. He's the sustainer of creation. And he is the one who has authority in the church to call the shots. Everybody's supposed to follow him. Question. Do we need this message in our church today? Is, do we need to be reminded that Christ is at the head of the church? Friends, um, we need to look to Christ, not to culture, to tell us how to deal with issues surrounding masculinity and, masculinity and femininity and, and gender roles and who should marry who. We need to look to Jesus for direction on that, not to our culture around us. Our culture is going to lead us astray. We need to look to Christ for those answers. He's the head. We need to look to Christ, not to secular science, to tell us how to interpret the book of Genesis 
and how to understand the natural world around us. If we look to our uh, you know, secular scientists, they're going to lead us in the wrong direction. We need to look to Jesus. He's the head of the church. He can give us what we need, how to believe, how to interpret the natural world. We need to look to Christ, the head of the church, not to political processes to tell us how to solve church issues and, to how, and how to organize and implement evangelism, not just for growth, but to complete the work. Now I want to move on to another verse here, verse 19. Again, still dealing with the question, who is this Jesus who redeemed us, who delivered us, who is going to repatriate us into his kingdom? It says in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Ellen White has an interesting uh, statement on this that I'd like to read. She says, to Jesus, who emptied himself for the salvation of lost humanity, the Holy Spirit was given in what sense? Without measure. So it will be given. I love it when she does this. You see what she does? She states the fact. This is what happened with Jesus. And then she follows it up with a, so it will be be. Don't you find that comforting? What does that mean for you, brother? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? So it will be given to who? Every follower of Christ when the whole heart is surrendered for his indwelling. Is this being filled with all the fullness? Now, there is a sense in which we will not be filled with all the fullness that Jesus was filled with because we're not God, and he was. All the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ. There was no sense in which he was not God or equal with the Father. Co-eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing. But in this sense... It says, so it will be given to every follower of Christ when the whole heart is surrendered for, the, for his indwelling. Our Lord himself has given the command, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. How many of you think that Jesus gives commands that could never happen? Really? I mean, would he do that? Of course not. I mean, what would you think of a father who was always telling his children to do things that they could never do? How, how is it to have a dad who says, yeah, we're going to go on vacation, and the vacation never comes? Is that disappointing? Would that make you disillusioned? Jesus doesn't do that. If he says, be filled with the Spirit, be filled with all the fullness... Every follower of Christ can have this. Does that mean you and me? Yeah. We can experience this. He says, and this command is also a promise of its fulfillment. It was the good pleasure of the Father that in Christ should 
all the fullness dwell, and in him ye are made full. Praise the Lord. So because Jesus experienced this, we can also experience it. Everything we have is based upon Christ and what he accomplished. So what did Jesus accomplish? You know, we've talked about who he is. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's transcendent. He is sovereign over his creation. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who sacrificed himself. Now, going into more detail, what did he accomplish? Verse 20 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, here is where many Christians get derailed. And I'll tell you why they get derailed. Because they don't see all the implications of these two verses. And the reason they don't see all the implications of these two verses is because they do not have a grasp of the great controversy motif. There is a great controversy that is taking place all around us in the seen world and especially in the unseen world. And if you don't have that understanding of what's going on, if you don't see the great controversy happening between Jesus and the devil, and you, know, you don't have this understanding of what took place in heaven before the world was ever created, you will not grasp the full implications of these two verses. Jesus, it says, made peace through the blood of his cross. We've touched on that a bit, but uh, I want to just say this about uh, these particular words. Christ made peace between God and man by doing what, friends? What was necessary for there to be peace between God and man? Payment of the penalty for sin. Yes, brother. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. Therefore, he died the equivalent of what the Bible refers to as the second death. He tasted this for all humanity, the Bible says. He tasted death for every man. That's what was necessary to make peace between God and man. However, this verse does not limit itself to simply the issue between God and man, does it? Did you see that? You see these two verses? Are there references here to things outside the God and man relationship? Yes or no? You guys have been sitting too long, right? Maybe if you stand up, that will increase the circulation to the brain and you'll be able to see this, right? Where's the reference to things outside the God and man relationship? In what words? Yes. It says, uh, whether things in earth or things in heaven. What was in heaven that needed to be reconciled? 
That's right. There were misunderstandings in heaven about God's character and about the nature of sin and about Lucifer's rebellion, all of those things. Reconciliation was not limited to earth's inhabitants, but there were things in heaven that needed to be reconciled too. And Jesus was the agent to reconcile all things to God, whether they be earthly or heavenly. Paul preaches the gospel in light of the great controversy here, and without an understanding of the great controversy, you will, as I said earlier, get lost in a fog of confusion about what all this means. Uh, yes, yes, that's a good point too, sister, those other worlds that are around. Sure. You know, my late friend, Herbert Douglas, some of you perhaps knew him. He, throughout his ministry, incessantly connected the great controversy with the gospel and linked those two together. Here is another line of evidence in these two verses that demonstrates that on that point, Dr. Douglas was absolutely spot on in his analysis. Loyal angels had questions in their mind. Even loyal angels had questions in their mind. All through the Old Testament era, Satan blamed God for all kinds of things. You know, sometimes at Weimar Institute, we have to send students home. It's just not working out, right? We try to screen people well and, you know, say, hey, are you going to be happy here? You know, this is what our school's about. This is why students come here to school. And some students will say yes, yes, and nod their head. But when it actually comes down to, you know, being part of the program, they decide that they don't want to. And then they create issues, right, for others. Sometimes we have to send people home, you know. If, if there's not a change that can happen in the mentality of the student, then the address has to change, right, for there to be peace. Just like it was in heaven, right? We are bound as administrators by a strict confidentiality policy which limits what we can say to people about why students are let go. We don't have to do this very often, thankfully, but uh, once in a while. Students can say all they want to. They can make up any wild story they care to make up. And when people come to us and say, I heard that so-and-so was uh, let go because of da-da-da, and we can't, we have to say, only thing I can tell you is he left school. You know, because we, we feel it's important to protect the student's reputation. And we cannot say, well, this is why. Let me tell you the whole story. Um, we, we believe that it's important for us to protect our student's reputation. And even if they say all kinds of things about us that are negative, right? You know, oh, the administration did this, and they said this to me, and da 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 you know, stuff that's totally not true. That, as I said, this doesn't happen often. Once in a while it does. We just, can't, we just have to say, look, you have been with us for how long now? You've seen the way we've acted in other situations. Do you trust us? 
If we don't have that trust, that's a problem. Most often, we do. It was like that for God, too. Satan was saying all kinds of things in the Old Testament as to why, Old Testament era, why he got kicked out of heaven. God, you're just trying to cover up this problem. No one could obey your law. It's ridiculous. Your rules are bad. God had to just keep quiet and allow things to play out. But when the cross happened, a lot of eyes were opened. Things in heaven were then reconciled to God. And the doubts that the good angels had were all dismissed. So what did Jesus accomplish? I like this next phrase, and we'll be wrapping up here in about five minutes. So for those of you who have to be somewhere, just give it five minutes here. We'll conclude. This gets personal now, Paul does. Verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he hath reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Notice how we were. What were we? We were alienated. We were hostile in our minds. And we were actively engaged in doing evil deeds. What did he do? He came in the flesh and reconciled us by his death. Why did he do it? You see it there in verse 22? Why did Jesus come and die? What does it say on the screen? To present us, by the way, I don't have time to deal with that in depth, but presenting someone means there's a judgment that's taking place. He wants to present us before someone else, and that someone else is God, okay? Don't have time to dwell with that in depth. But he came to present us holy and blameless and unreprovable in God's sight. Does that sound to you like it's God's purpose that we just say, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. I'm going to live my life however I want to live it. Does that sound like what's being implied here? Sorry, let me, let me say it one more time. Does, do these words to present you holy unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Does that sound like a gospel that would be okay with this thought? Jesus, I believe in you, and I can do anything I want now. Do those two seem like they go together? I don't think so either. That's not the purpose that Jesus died. The purpose that he, uh, for his death was to restore the image of God in man. That was the purpose. And that's what I think is implied here in these verses. On what condition do we experience this reconciliation? Verse 23 gives us the answer to that. If ye do what? Continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. 
So is this like, hey, you know, you Colossians, you believed in Jesus, now you're in. Nothing can, uh, nothing can affect your standing with God now. No. There's a continuance that's involved. We're to continue in the faith, to keep progressing, moving forward, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So, takeaways from this uh, presentation, from the section dealing with the focus of the Colossian church. Number one, is the Jesus you say you believe in the one that is described here? Is he the creator? And by the way, implied in this is that he created in the way that the book of Genesis outlines. Did Jesus say that that's how the creation happened? Did he affirm the creation story? Yeah. When he talked about male and female in Matthew 19, he said, haven't you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? I mean, hello, Jesus is saying, hey, that what you read there in Genesis, that's how it happened. That's how I did it. So is the Jesus you say you believe in the one that's described here, the one that needed to die in order to forgive sins. The one that created the world. The one that is outside his creation. Sovereign over it. Transcendent. Is that the one you know and love? And then number two. Are you in harmony with his purpose for your church? Remember it says that he is head of the church. Are you in harmony with his headship over the church? Are you okay with that? And then finally, what about your personal life? If he's head of the church, then he also wants to be head over your life too. Is that all right with you? You okay with that? Jesus will, you know, he's not going to force it. If you say, hey, I really don't, I'm not good with that. I don't want you to be head over my life. He will regretfully back off and let you do what you want. In fact, I mean, let me make a, say a provocative thing here. God will give you anything you want. Amen. He will give you anything you want, even if it kills him. Let's conclude there. I want you to think about these particular questions. If there's anybody who would like to have a short season of prayer, I know we're, uh, what's the next thing? Oh, it's plenary session, right? Okay. Uh, if anybody would like to, you know, you're feeling like, you know, I want to rededicate my life to God or there's something personal I want to pray about, I'll, re I'll remain by just a couple of minutes. If you'd like to stay by, we can have a short time of prayer together. But uh, let's stand for prayer now. Father in heaven, we re rejoice in this opportunity we've had this morning to consider some thoughts from the book of Colossians. I pray that as the plenary session is about to begin, that your spirit would be there in a powerful way. Bless the speaker. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, 
and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.